We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. There's a lot of talk. This is good, but good morning. All right. Good to have you with us this morning, those of you who are here, and as always, a welcome to those who are listening live at KFUO, on KFUO Radio, or online at KFUO.org. Let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we have much to give you thanks for, especially first and foremost, Lord, we give you thanks for bringing us here together this day, that we may gather together in your holy house to worship you and gather together around your holy word to study it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray, as always, that your Holy Spirit would continue to guide us in study of your word, that it may strengthen us in our faith towards you and showing that faith towards others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like I probably should announce it again for those who are listening. My name is uh, Pastor Kevin Thompson, because I am newer to this broadcast. But as you all know me here. I'm excited to be here and go through our study today. So as always, in this Bible class, we will consider the lessons and the readings appointed for next Sunday. Today we are celebrating All Saints Day, but tomorrow we will continue back in the season of Pentecost as we are nearing the end of the Pentecost season, and in fact that also means the end of the church year. But soon enough, will be an Advent. I know everything Christmas... I already saw a Christmas tree out in St. Louis the other day. Not Thanksgiving yet, but that's another branch for another place. Anyways, let's begin with our first reading here from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. I'll read that word for us. 1 Kings 17, verse 8 through 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And here are, ends our reading for next week. So, as we get back into the Pentecost season, we get back um, from Revelation and some of those other readings we're having, back into a very typical Old Testament, in the book here of 1 Kings. I should have said it before I started reading, but right off in the beginning of our reading, it says, the word of the Lord came to him. A little bit of context, it's him is Elijah. 
I should have mentioned that before. But if you go back to chapter 17, verse 1, it talks about Elijah the Tishbite. Now, a reminder, Elijah is a prophet. And thinking again of what, who we know prophets to be, or more so what prophets are. Prophets are men who are sent by God to declare God's word. And they are there to share God's word with the people. Oftentimes, God's people. But even sometimes, they would go to not God's people unbelievers, pagan nations or rulers, and then again still proclaim God's word and what God desires and wills, and especially in those cases, met with resistance. Even at times we see that God's people, when they heard prophet's words, are met with resistance. But in this situation, here we are in uh, chapter 17 when Elijah is going and he's, uh, and he's been sent off away. Because just before this, the king Ahab... He is, as it says in chapter 16, King Ahab, the son of Omri, is the king of the land. And this king was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Simple way that the word of God uses to say, he's a bad king. He's not doing good at all. He's evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, in this, in this way, then, the Lord is protecting his, his servant, his prophet, Elijah. Sends him off in the beginning part of chapter 17. Elijah sent off to a land where then he is to live by this brook. Of water, and the brook of water would there provide him enough sustenance to continue him to live. But then this brook dries up, and so then that leads into where we're at here at verse 8. Because now, verse 8, Elijah is sent to go to this town, Zarephath, where there's a woman and she will feed him and give him drink. Another way that God is providing for his servant. But let's back up a little bit for that, because that gives us the context here. So beginning here of our reading, he goes to Zarephath. Now, for those of you who are very geographical and the like and, and appreciate that sense, the vil- Zarephath is a village between Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast. And through, it goes through Israel to a territory outside of Israel. So point being, he's not in Israel's territory, territory at this point. And that will be key when we come to it through the latter half of this story again. We get to understanding what God's really doing here, not just for, for Elijah, but for this woman and her son. So they're not in Israel territory. Okay? So, I have commanded and appointed a widow to feed you. That's what God tells to Elijah. God's, again, speaking directly to prophets because that's the way he spoke then. I know sometimes we like to hear that today. God's speaking to us. This is what you need to do. Go do this. We don't have it. That's not the way God communicates today. But in that day, that's what he did. He tells Elijah to go. And, and not just go, but go and I, I have this prepared for you. So think of also that God's showing him, I'm going to take care of you, so go. And go off there where I will take care of you. And then I think it's also worth noting here, verse uh, 9, God says, Behold, go and, and do this. And verse 10, so Elijah rose and went. Okay? He's obeying God's command. Now, I don't know if there was in between. I don't want us to get stuck off. Well, did he think about it for a while? Or, you know, did he question it? We don't have all that. Point is, I think what we see is that there's nothing to really read into there. Simply, God gives him his command. He tells him he's going to be with him. He's been with him before. He goes. Okay? So Elijah goes. He obeys the Lord, gets up, and goes to Zarephath. All right. Now we look a little bit further to verse... um, It's still verse 10. The end of verse 10... And Elijah says to this woman, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And then as she was going, in verse 11, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread to eat. Just a side note, because I was reading this and I didn't think about it until I read a little bit more study resources later. 
He's not being rude, okay? He, one, God told him this widow would be there. And then, two, when he's speaking to this woman, what, it, the words he uses are not rude at all. He's simply saying, can you please give me some food and water to drink? Okay? And, and, and so I just want us to see that he's not being rude to her. He's respecting her. And, it, and there, I think that's worth enough stating because you see in Scripture that he's, he's asking her to do these things, but he's not just demanding. So, again, he's, he's trying to operate within good parameters of what he's there to do. So she goes and she brings him the food and drink. But before she does that in verse 12, she says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in, in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go prepare for myself or my son so that we may eat it and die. It's a rather bleak picture. The bleak picture is that she doesn't have very much. She really has almost nothing. Just barely enough to really sustain her and her son for a little bit. Because then even as she says that then they will die. So she barely has anything. And the very little she has won't even last her and her son much too long. And yet, Elijah says to her, verse 13, Do not fear. Go and do as you've said. Okay? She has just about nothing, and yet he says to her, he doesn't say, okay, great, but do it anyways. Notice his words. Do not fear. But first go make me the food as, as, you've, been, as you've been asked and you said you would do. And then he says, also make some for you and your son. Okay? So those key words, do not fear. I want to come back to those a little bit. But just want you to really highlight and notice. He starts off with do not fear. Because later we're going to see just how powerful and amazing God is. And she already stated here in verse 12, as the Lord your God lives. Now I struggled with that portion of the reading because I couldn't find many other resources that helped me. Albeit I didn't look at all the resources there are. But at the few I looked, I couldn't see why it states expl explicitly your God. Now I think the best guess, I am acknowledging this is a guess, okay? Best guess on based on the context and like, again, she's not in the Israelite territory. So she's not in, basic, so to speak, put it simply, in God's people's land. So my best guess is she's not really a follower of the true God, Yahweh, the Lord God, Elijah's Lord God. That would be my best guess. But it, I, I don't want us to read into it that she's just saying, well, you're God. Okay? But I think it's just really simply saying that she's not really of that fold, that fold of God's people already. Or so she thinks. Right, we'll see. Okay. So she acknowledges the Lord your God and he says do not fear. So pair again, he's coming in the name of the Lord God. He says do not fear. Which if you think elsewhere in scripture, when God sends his servants and he tells do not fear to people, it truly brings peace. More importantly, when we see Jesus in scriptures who says do not fear, or more explicitly he says peace, which is the opposite of fear. In many senses, it happens. Okay? So, as a result, she goes and she does it. And she makes this, this food. Okay? Key words here, or key, another key verse here is verse 14. Because here again, we have the very explicit word of God, the Lord God. The Lord God of Israel says in verse 14, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. It won't run out until God decides so. God's in control here. 
until the Lord God sends rain upon the earth. As much as her picture may seem bleak, as much as she doesn't really understand probably who this God is, the Lord God speaks and says it won't run out until he sends rain upon the earth. He's in control. And we haven't even got to the beautiful part yet where he shows he's in control. Okay? God is in control over all this. Even when it doesn't seem to be so. Even when it doesn't look like it's possible for God, it's possible. But I get too excited and go get ahead of myself here. Okay? So, we see, then in uh, verse 15, she goes, she, did, she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he, likely the he being her boy, okay? And her household ate for many days. Many days. In verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord. It's not all just speak. It's not all just words. It happened. God said it would happen and it happened. Okay? And so, it's, and, and so here we can see what, what are some of the key teachings that we can see out of this. One, uh, see that the kingdom of God seems so far away to her. Right? It seems so far away. They're in this, this land that's a foreign land. Don't, doesn't seem like a good picture. Seems rather bleak. It seems far away. All she sees in her pot and in her jar is little. She can't see much. It seems far away. It seems completely impossible. Really, the kingdom of God is right there at hand. Right there in front of her. Because the kingdom of God, in which we can talk about, that'd be a whole other Bible story or Bible study. But there are books and books of that. Uh, uh, just talking about that whole concept. But the kingdom of God in one, one essential way is the, simply the reign and rule of God. And here, even though she didn't realize it until it happened, the kingdom of God was fully present at there because there, he was, his reign and rule was there. His reign and rule through the prophet Elijah as he's speaking to her, speaking his word, which accomplished his power. And he did this great miracle. It's a miracle. But it's not something some human could have done. It's not like she just stretched out the flower somehow, cut it down with sand. I don't know. It was a miracle. He provided for them. So this invisible thing became visible for her. The other thing I'd like us to really see out of the, or hear out of this, this account of Scripture is simply the power of God's Word. And we talk about that a lot in our, in, uh, in our study of God's Word, as we should, because God's Word is so powerful. God's Word is, it always accomplishes what it is set out to do. Simply when God's Word is spoken, it accomplishes things. And that's another key thing that... Um, I'll never forget when I was learning homiletics and, and the, the instructor was telling us that you know, when you're learning to preach on, on Scripture, especially in the New Testament, and you see Jesus doing miracles, the key thing is always look at how does the miracle get accomplished. In many cases, not necessarily all of them, many cases it's simply Jesus speaking. So there is, again, pointed to the power of God's Word. Now here we're in the Old Testament, but again... Scripture all runs throughout, it's all connected. So here we have the power of God's word. That God's word said, go and do, he went and did. More importantly, it said, do not fear. So then we see that she's actually doing it. And then God's word said that it won't run out, and it didn't run out. Okay? And then another thing we can see, especially as today being All Saints Day, even though we'll read this next week. Today on All Saints Day, we focus on that feast in heaven. Our loved ones, as we read their names and worship are already enjoying the great bounties of heaven. Here we see, again, kind of a, a foretaste of that feast, how it won't run out. We talked about it in study last week. No hunger, no more thirst. Not in, in God's word, no one should hunger or thirst. 
and no barrier is too strong for God. He can accomplish anything. Uh, the last thing I would really point out for um, this scripture reading, because that will flow us into some of the others for next week, is just simply that um, God's grace goes where and when he wants it to. Okay? God's grace is, is essentially it's radical in nature compared to what we would expect. Really, it's radical in, in terms of what we should deserve, because that's basically what grace is, right? His undeserved mercy and favor. But God's grace goes when and where it wants. And in this, in this account of scripture, it goes into a foreign land to a woman who's not of necessarily one of God's people, per se, and yet it goes to her. Unexpected. Goes to a woman who doesn't have very much, who in that society, again, would have been marginalized. And yet it goes to her. And we'll see kind of that, again, that theme, too, of going when and where, especially to the marginalized, in some of our readings to come um, for next week. So, any questions or thoughts? Uh, yeah. Mm. Interesting. So, just especially for our online listeners, as the Lord your God lives, comparing that to the pagan gods, which would not be living, that's an interesting point. I, I think you're right in the fact that Definitely there's a huge contrast between the Lord of God living versus these non-living pagan gods, especially those that are idols and the like, all those pagans. But I'll be really honest, I didn't see any of that. I didn't, I didn't think about that in study. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And... You know, I think on one hand, you could see that people in that time of maybe worshiping other, other gods, other pagan gods, maybe they think they're living. So maybe that was the language. But I think there could be some good validity to what you're saying in that this is maybe already God's kind of working his spirit inside of her heart already before she even knows it, showing that um, she recognizes he, this is a different God. And I think she probably would have recognized this being a different situation, just the way this man's coming to her. Um, and, you know, it says back in verse 9, as the Lord is speaking to Elijah, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. See, that I would be the other question. I would wonder, how does that tie together? Because I don't, from my understanding, we don't have anything else of where it talks about God commanding this widow. But it says here, I have commanded, the Lord speaking, a widow to feed you. So maybe she, maybe the Lord appeared to her. And so maybe that was then cluing her in on, okay, this is the real God. This God lives versus the others. That's really interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. Any other questions or comments or thoughts? All right. Well, let's move on. And um, we're current, currently, here's what we're going to do. So I know I printed, for those of you who are looking on the sheets, sorry. Uh, I printed Hebrews 9, verse 24 and 28. That is the epistle reading. We will be reading next week. But we're going to skip over that for now. And we'll come back to it later because um, as I was preparing for this, late in my preparations, Vicar told me that he's not preaching on any of the sign readings next week other than the psalm. And the psalm, is, it will be in our worship services. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at Psalm 146. 
So if you need to grab a Bible for those who are here, go ahead and grab one or your phone. Otherwise, I'll, I'll read it for us and discuss it through. But I'd like to look at Psalm 146, especially as we're getting prepared for what we will then even hear more about through the sermon next week. I want to talk about Psalm 146. So, let me just turn there myself, and then I will read God's word for us. Psalm 146, and it'll, it should be a familiar psalm, I think, to many of us, so that'll come up here. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. And here ends our reading. As I said, we will have this in our worship services being read for us. I apologize for not printing it. But Psalm 146, and before we dig into that actual psalm and those words, just want to kind of point out something that in, in the entire book of the Psalms, these last five, Psalm 146 then being the first, Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150. Got them all there. Okay. All of those are, are they're, they're concluding the book here, and those are all really uh, praise psalms, or as you'll also hear them called, um, the Hallelujah Psalms. That's what Hallelujah is, giving praise to God. Okay, so all of these psalms, 146 through the end of the Psalter here, they all start off with praise to the Lord, and, and it even repeats more and more throughout these psalms. Okay, but so there's this strong emphasis on praising to God. Which the other thing we can see with that is if you look throughout the entire Psalter, read it every day, right? No? Uh, what I'm told, I read this random fact, I think I read this once in a history book that Martin Luther would pray through the entire Psalter like five times a day when he was in his monastic time. I think that's right. Feel free to fact check me. Maybe someone online is listening. They're going to email me like, nope, you're wrong. I'll be wrong on that. That's fine. But point being, uh, the Psalter is rather long, but it'd be great for our prayer life. Anyways, if you look throughout the Psalter... Uh, there seems to be this general move from a more lament of nature in the Psalms all the way then when it ends to a very praising nature. Now, when you hear me say that, don't get me wrong. Those are, there's interspersed. There's plenty of places throughout the Psalter where their Psalms are praising God. And there's laments and such scattered throughout. But if you think about it in that generalized fashion, you have this Psalter, yeah, Experience, expressing lament and you know experiencing all the pains and sufferings of this world persecutions and questions and maybe even doubts and all this frustrations and anger and, and whatever it might be all the emotions that we're all too well familiar with and but going to the, going to God with all those emotions and yet if you see this progression at the end the Psalter ends which is such great high praise to God 
okay? Because, you know, and it's okay to be mad or, or frustrated and sad and heartbroken and all those things. The key thing is take it to God. Because it ends here with this song praising to God, reminding us we give it all to God, okay? So Psalm 146 starts off these Alleluia Psalms. And as you see, we'll go, now let's dig into the, the scripture reading more specifically. Uh, verse 2 says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. There's a key emphasis here that basically his entire life is, is, sh should be dedicated to God to praise him. As long as I live, as long as I have my being. Okay, it's just simply a life lived in praise to God. And shouldn't that really be ultimately our goal as Christians, ones who've been given so much by God? He deserves much praises. But then here we move into the, the real heart of this psalm. Verse 3 says, put, your, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man. Basically saying, don't put your trust in mortal men. Mortal mankind, men, women, what have you. Don't put your trust in mortal flesh. Because, as it says very clearly here, mortal man can't keep his salvation. Okay? I was using this example the other day, and it sounds rather stark. So, just stay with me for this, okay? I was talking with our, our confirmand about Jesus Christ. How it's important that he's a true man, but he's also true God. It's important on both sides of those. And I said to one of the boys, and we'll just call him Bob because I don't, I'm not going to speak his name out in public. Well, he, he did a great job. Anyways, I said, to, I said to Bob in class, and I said to him, I said, well, you know, Bob's a great guy, but if he died on the cross, it wouldn't do anything for me because he's just a man. Jesus died on the cross, and he is a man, and that was important, but he's also God, so therefore his death on the cross could be satisfactory for all of us, including myself and you and all of mankind that's ever existed. And so here again, we see this same, same concept that not, mankind alone can't bring salvation. And then in verse 4, it tells us his breath departs. He's going to die someday. Okay? And when he dies, his plans perish. Mankind can make all the plans he wants in life, can work as hard as he wants, have all these plans for what he's going to do. But when life is over, his plans cease. And we can work hard to control what we do, work hard and, and strive and do our best, which we should try to do our best in life and have plans and goals and be productive. But at the end of that, no longer does that exist. Now, at the end of that, we know there's hope, okay? Don't get me wrong. We don't just stop, like, right? That would be completely contrary to all of what we believe and teach here, okay? But at the end of that, when we die, we know we get to trust in God's plans because his plans don't cease. Which is where we go here next, okay? Because then verse 5 through 10, the majority of this psalm, gets at telling us who is God. And that's really what we'll see. So we'll come back to this in the end. We have this great contrast between mortal or mankind and God. Okay? So if you're looking at the scripture reading from 146, who is God? Okay? Every single line, not even verse, because there's usually two per verse, it tells us a little bit more who God is. Okay? Oh, I, I forgot to know, mention too. Verse 5 starts off with, Blessed is he whose help is in the name of the Lord. So again, which should hearken us back to the readings that we studied last week and we're hearing this week on All Saints Day. The Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed. Okay? So blessed are those. Again, they're blessed. They get to receive these. That's us. We are the ones who are blessed because we get to trust in his name. So who is this name that we get to trust in? Who is this God? Okay, verse 6. 
God's the, the one who made heaven and earth. And the sea and all that's in him. God's the one who creator. He makes everything. Also should say, as we remember, he created everything with his word. Again, power statement to his word. God is one who keeps faith forever. He's faithful. So mortal mankind, we're, we're not faithful. I'll call it, I'm not. Okay, there's times where I've broken promises where I shouldn't have. Sinful, right? Now, don't take that too far, okay? But we're, we're humankind. We, we break our promises. God never breaks his promises. He is perfectly faithful, okay? Then God is one who executes justice. He's the one who holds judgment in his hands. And he gives not, not even just holding judgment, but he executes justice for those who are oppressed, caring for the marginalized. The oppressed, those who are especially in need. Possibly drawing our minds a little bit back to our reading we just, just, just discussed. He gives food to the hungry. We just talked about that one. Okay? He gives food to the hungry. And then we talk about, if we tie that in with Revelation, the fact that he, there will be no hunger. Giving us that eternal um, cessation of hunger and thirst. Then we keep going on. God, the Lord says, prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, which... We could kind of probably see in a couple of different ways. One, he actually did that, right? Jesus did miracles, healing the blind. But also he opens our eyes that are blind spiritually. Okay. Continuing through verse 8. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. Watches over the sojourners. So many times, especially in the Old Testament. Especially in the Old Testament, not that it's not in the New, but especially in the Old Testament, you see this very common language of sojourners. People are traveling throughout, and, and they're oftentimes they're, they're lacking as far as what they need. They might be facing great difficult tr um, trial or struggle, okay? and yet God provides for them. You, think, you see that there's even laws and ways that God provided, saying that people should not harvest all their fields, but rather leave some so they can glean from them. Okay? That this theme of sojourners all throughout scripture. And God's the one who watches over them. Then it goes on. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The ones who, especially in context here, had the least amount of support. Because especially being a widow or the fatherless, you had no one else there to provide for you oftentimes. So the ones who are marginalized by society, the ones who are least provided for, and yet God cares for them. But... The way the wicked he brings to ruin. So God even ruins the wicked ways. Which, again, you know, we see that there's wicked in this world that seem to have their ways, but they don't. Might seem like it, but they don't. Ultimately, God's in control. And he will bring it to ruin. And then, verse 10, he reigns forever. Not just a little time. And we read from 1 Kings. If you read throughout that book, you see a king came to reign, came to power. Sometimes only verses later, he's out of power, okay? Maybe it's even years. Point is, is whatever stretch that those kings reign, it's nothing in comparison to the Lord God. His reign is forever. Always has been, always is, and always will be. So, I don't know where Vicar Wade's going with this next week, but it's a beautiful psalm. Because we see such a contrast between mortal mankind and God. Our plans, are, they fail and they, they end when we, when we die. But God's don't. We get to trust in Him because even though we may not keep our promises, even though we may fail and falter, God never does. Even though we can't always provide for the things that we need, God's always got ways that He's providing for us. And even when the physical things in this life aren't met or we do, our life does end here, we know that God has provided so much more for us eternally. And should it be our time to die, then we know we get to be in his arms forever. 
It's just this beautiful contrast between who mankind is versus God. We have a wonderful God, especially as we look at this psalm. Any questions or thoughts on this reading? Okay. Let's go on to Mark chapter 12, the gospel reading for next week. And like I said, I'd like to have time and come back to Hebrews. But I also think the Hebrews reading we've heard kind of gets pretty direct to the point. So I'd like to have a little more time in Mark chapter 12 here. So Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 44. And I'll go ahead and read those verses for us. Mark 12, verse 38 through 44. And in his teaching, Jesus' teaching, in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. All those who are, who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance... And she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Here ends our gospel reading for next week. Okay, as always, context is key when you're studying the scriptures, and just not to pull it out of nowhere. So if you look here in the Gospel of Mark, the context that we have is that the scribes and, and, and other sorts of leaders, religious leaders at the time, they've been kind of growing in their opposition towards Jesus. Okay, so there's just kind of this growing force of opposition towards Jesus and his teachings and what he's done. Um, but here then we have this account in verse 38 of the scribes. And then we kind of go to this widow's offering. I think especially the widow's offering, a fairly familiar story. Especially here at St. Paul's, considering we went through our capital campaign recently. I'm sure we discussed this, um, but we're not going to be going to, down that route here in this study per se. Unless you take us there, we could do that. Um, so... Here we have this growing opposition, and we think about it also in the context of Mark, especially because Mark's gospel is a little bit shorter, uh, because only a couple chapters later you have the plot to kill Jesus. So my point being there is that Jesus' time is coming soon to his climax, the climax in which he will there be on the cross and rise from the dead and do that very great miracle that he had come to do. Okay, So there's this mounting judgment and mounting feeling of people here who fail to see the reign of God at hand here in Jesus. Okay, again, I'll say that again. There's a mounting feeling that people are failing to see the reign of God at hand. Remember earlier I was talking about the kingdom of God as the reign and rule of God. So it's the same concept. Here in this re reading, we have this, this growing opposition, these scribes and the like, who don't see the kingdom of God at hand in Jesus. Don't see the real power and reign and rule of God in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes his teachings come completely contrary to what they were thinking. Contrary to their you know, strict adherence to the law or the other things that they would impose on people. 
And yet it was, in Jesus Christ, truly God's reign and rule. Truly His word, His desire for people. Not wrong. They might have thought it was, but it wasn't. So here we go. We have Jesus, again, just completely flipping upside down what they think and the way they're viewing things. Okay, so... Again, it's just that this, the system had grown fundamentally wrong at this point. Okay? So, when we read this, verses 38 through 40, um, this isn't just a moral teaching, but rather it's a strong condemnation. Because even you see there at the end of verse 40, they will receive greater condemnation. So, this is serious. Okay? This isn't just saying, yeah, this is how you should live, and it's good, this is good morality. No. This is condemnation. Those who are stuck in this way, only think this way, no repentance, have all these issues, there's some serious condemnation for them. Serious punishment and, and, and words that need to be given to them. And that's what Jesus has for them here. Okay. The other piece of context I'll give us to, to understand this scripture better is think about the scribes. Okay. The scribes were generally admired by other people. I mean, they were learned in the scriptures, and so they were well-respected. They were religious leaders. So, generally, they're admired. But as we look here in this reading, as I already just said, they receive condemnation. There's a great turn of events here. The men who are admired in their standing and their position and what they do, and yet here is complete turn of events, and Jesus is pronouncing a serious, they will receive greater condemnation. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so let's go back to verse 38. Look, what's the scri- what are the scribes doing here? The scribes in verse 38 like to walk around in long robes. Okay. I immediately read that. I was like, I wear a long robe every week. Okay? We'll get to that. They like to wear long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. I won't stop there for a moment. Okay? Like I said, I wear a long robe every week. Okay? Our alps. That's not what we're talking about here. And I'm very thankful for that. Because otherwise I'd be receiving condemnation. Okay? We wear long robes because we're trying to give honor and respect to God. The point here is in the scripture, they're wearing it all around, okay? They like to walk around in their long robes, parading their status, parading them being better than other people. They're long robes, okay? And then you go on, they like greetings in the marketplaces, getting this honor and glory to them, lifting them up, okay? And then they have the best seats in the synagogues, thinking the best for them. Now, I didn't see a whole lot of this, so I'm going to... Put a little inference in here, a little suggestive thought to this. But basically, what about the others? The others, you know, Jesus teaches us oftentimes to lift up those. You know, humble ourselves and lift up others. Lift up the oppressed and the marginalized. Or even just to, not to lift up ourselves, but just anybody else, our neighbor around us. Okay? In here, yet, they're lifting up themselves. The best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. Also, Harkens maybe in your mind, in your, in your memory, when Jesus says, you know, the one who comes to the feast, he should sit at the lowest seat of the table and then be asked to move up rather than to be at the highest seat of the table and be asked to move to the lowest. Okay? Then we go on. Not only are they doing that, they devour widows' houses. Literally read it, was reading, and they, they didn't come to a consensus on what that means, but it does, doesn't, doesn't sound good. Okay? Widows, again, and we've, we've talked about this a couple of times, those who are generally uh, oppressed because of lack of need and, and having things that they would generally be provided for if they should have a husband. The ones that oftentimes were then maybe left out or cast out by some people even. So, maybe whatever that what, to devour their houses is not a good thing. 
someone who's already oppressed and they're devouring their houses. And, and for a pretense, make long prayers. Again, have long prayers. It's good. When you go home at night, go home today, when you're driving down the road, you got a six-hour car ride, if you want to pray for six hours, good. Okay, God wants to hear from you, he wants to talk with you. That's not what we're talking about. They're making a pretense. As we also hear in the gospel, uh, Gospels um, of Scripture, you know, the ones the scribes who go out, make sure everyone can hear just how long their prayers are. This is how good I am, because I pray really long. I'm so good, you should look at me, look how good I am. That's what he's kind of getting at. Or that's, that's what Jesus is getting at here, okay? Making this pretense for long prayers. Okay? Does it sound like they're really acting as Jesus would have them to act? No. Not in the least. Okay? So they have this, this value, status, and such, but, and yet, they put all their value in status and earthly things. As we know, Jesus doesn't put it in those things. Says the greatest shall be the least, and the least shall be greatest. Right? So, uh, one question to consider. How did the crowds react? Because we go right from that, and then Jesus said, sits down opposite. Okay? So, it says that Jesus was teaching, you know, and there was, right before this, there's a great throng who heard Jesus teaching, and he's still teaching. So, likely there were crowds, other people, that weren't necessarily scribes hearing. How'd they react? I don't know. Doesn't say. Okay? But how do you think? If you saw your religious leaders, who generally were, you know, well-respected, or at least thought of it, and they should be right, and yet they're getting criticized by Jesus, you'd be shocked. I don't know. If I were to give you an answer, I'd be making it up. That's not good. So, we don't know. But it, it's kind of fun to think about those kinds of things. At least trusting in God and say, well, even we can't answer, it's fun to think about. Let's leave it at We don't know. So, we continue on with verse 41 through 44. Um, so here we go into this next section now. So consider you have this first section of reading and where the greatest, you know, if we kind of generalize it to be, the greatest, the leaders, are thinking of highest of themselves, but rather you should be thinking and uplifting those who are poor in society, you know, humbling in our higher positions, humble ourselves to then lift up those who are poor and oppressed. And then we see this, that kind of leads us into this next reading. Okay, who's the greatest? The greatest are... Spoiler, the woman who gives out of little, okay? So, um, you have these treasury, these offering boxes where people are coming and giving uh, their offerings. Pretty, it's pretty direct here that the, the, these many rich people are putting in large sums. The widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. Um, I was reading one source that said it was interesting that, so a denarius was usually a day's wage, okay? And yet, what she's giving was less than one one-hundredth of a day's wage. Not much at all. But it's a huge contrast if you think she's got like, if she's giving one one hundredth of a day's wage and these people over here are giving large sums, there's a huge contrast. Really, she's giving almost nothing compared to all this sum of money, whatever it is, we don't know, large sums. Okay, so there's a big contrast between the two. All right? But as we know, they threw in out of their abundance. So now a low percentage of what they had, but rather she threw in out of her lack, a higher percentage. So again, you see this contrast now flipping the other way. Okay. And um, so the other thing is you consider to, in contrast to the scribe just before this, 
The scribe who's giving more glory to himself, she's giving all of her life to God. Giving wholly everything she has to God. It's not about her, it's about God. Okay, so you see that the, this whole system had really become fundamentally wrong. The fundamentally wrong in the religious system that these scribes were all about themselves and doing it for them. When God is to say, it's not, you know, who's the greatest? Not that. That's not what's the greatest. But rather, then we have this other example paired right after in Mark's gospel that shows us this is the greatest. One who gives of their whole life to God. Okay? Like I said, I'm not going to go down a whole route here this morning about talking about finances and the like. If you want to talk about it and let me know, we can, you know, talk personally or whatnot. Obviously, the point is, is when we give to God, it's the point of giving to Him because He's first given us. And also, then we talked, and this is the last other thing about that is that, you know, we talk about, especially in our campaign, giving sacrificially. Giving and trusting that God will provide. But the other thing that I really want us to key in on this, as we see the more so that this is the stronger tie to the rest of the readings for next week, is that fact that God's grace, just look how it provides. If she gave out of, out of her little, and she knows that God's grace will provide so greatly for her. Now, we don't have much after that, okay? It stops and it goes on to another account. I don't know what happened to the widow necessarily. I didn't do any extra reading to figure out if there are other sources who know, but Scripture, looking strictly at it, doesn't tell us what happened to her. But what we know is God's grace so richly provides for her. That even though she had little physically and, and monetarily, she had so much because of God's grace. And God's grace, is, he showed his grace to her, you know, likely again, a more marginalized or oppressed person in that society. Very much similar to our Old Testament for next week. The woman who is marginalized in that society, oppressed, not having much food, and got God's grace was shown to her. So that there being, I think, the key theme that we want to tie in. Like I said, we could talk about the money, but I think with next week's readings, because again, it's at the end of Pentecost season, we're getting close to the end of the church here. We see this tie again that what God's grace just so richly provides, because especially in the end of uh, Pentecost season, we focus more and more on the end of, of time. When God will send, when Jesus Christ will come back again, that second and last time, and he'll take us all to eternity with him. And so as we think about that and reflect on more of that, we don't have to be scared. We get to be eager and anticipate it and so excited about it because we know that God's grace will then come to us in his fullest, richest nature. Any thoughts or questions on Mark's gospel for next week? All right. Perfect. This is good. If you have your sheets, go ahead and take them out uh, and switch back to Hebrews 9 if you're looking at your scripture. Uh, an actual Bible put together there and then printed out. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 through 28. That is our epistle lesson for next week. I Personally, it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful one. I think it's a personal favorite, but didn't want to neglect it. Just want to make sure we get the other ones. So, Hebrews 9, verse 24 through 28. I'll read that again. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all 
at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here ends our epistle for next week. Okay. So again, just one more one note as we look at this reading. It's Hebrews, and actually Vicar Wade talked about this a little bit in his sermon here at St. Paul's a couple weeks ago, but Hebrews being a, a, a book of scripture that was written to the Hebrews. Okay, so the people who greatly knew the history and, and the context of God and what he's done for his people. So um, when we read this, again, we're God's people, and we, we, have the, we have the whole of scripture, and we get to read it. And we get to know the history of who God is and what he's done for his people and who, how he's established his people throughout all of history, all the way back to the beginning of time through Old Testament, New Testament to today. So I, I say that because here in Hebrews 9, we, get really, we really draw on a lot of Old Testament themes and Old Testament even, not just themes, but events and ways of life. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so verse 24 Christ entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So, first of all, not into holy places made with hands, which would hearken us back to thinking of the Old Testament, when you have the, the tabernacle having the holy places. You know, there's the holy place and there's the holy of holies, okay? These holy places that are made by hands. Now, that's not denigrating to say that those people were doing something wrong. I mean, they had to make them by hands. How else are we going to make them? And God had gave instructions for making the tabernacle. He instructed his people what to do and, and how it was to look and how it was to be held in reverence and the like, and that's where he would be. But the point being, those were his holy places that he established with hands. Okay? Now, here in Christ, Christ is in heaven in the presence of God on our behalf. Which to me, the first thing I think of there is in, in our Apostles' Creed, or our other creeds as well, but especially the Apostles' Creed just for, for brevity's sake, right? Apostles of Creed, he ascended into heaven. We know that Christ is ascended into heaven, and there he is in heaven. And I always say this when I'm teaching confirmation or kind of intro to what we believe. Not just sitting there hanging out, okay? Sitting on the couch, enjoying it, relaxing. He's sitting there interceding on the throne of God, which is an act of being there on the throne of God. Because he is interceding for you every single day. Interceding for you before the Father in heaven. What do we say in our prayers? How do we usually end them? In Jesus' name, right? Because we know that we can go through Jesus Christ to pray to God. Now, okay, if you don't end in Jesus, your prayers are okay. All right, you can still pray to God, right? You can pray to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But my point is, Jesus came to be our intercessor. And through him, we have access to the Father. Because without Jesus Christ coming to die and rise and ascend into heaven, we would not have access to the Father. The Father tells us that in order to be in heaven with him, we have to be perfect. None of us are perfect. But because of Christ, especially on All Saints Day as we were here, heard, and we studied last week, we are made white through His blood, made pure through His blood. We get to be, we get to have access to the Father in Heaven because of what His Son has done. So Christ, oh no, lost my page. So Christ has entered in the holy place. He's in Heaven itself. Okay. Then verse 25, nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places. Again, looking back at the Old Testament, the high priests consistently were offering these sacrifices. 
Now, again, God's command, God instruct them how to, to conduct worship in that time. But then being sacrifices, taking bulls and rams to the altar, actually slaughtering them. And, and, and there was rep- it was repetitive because it was God telling them to continually do this. This is how they did it. But for Christ, once. Not many times, once. And for Christ, it wasn't just shedding the blood of a, of a bull or a ram. It was his bu- blood, his true body and blood, which we receive in Holy Communion. And we are so... Um, certain in teaching and believing because as it, he shows us in scripture and we receive in the sacraments, he shed his blood. It wasn't just some fake thing. It was literally, I mean, as you see, you think of this, the, the centurions piercing his side with a spear. His blood poured out for you. Okay? So this comes in again here in Hebrews 9. Um, and then verse 27, just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. Which again, I'm reading here at the end of Pentecost. Church year is wrapping up as we get to go start it again, go through Advent and the like. But we think again that Christ is going to come back, and here it is. He's going to come back to save those who eagerly await him. That's us. We get to eagerly await Christ because we know that when he comes back, we get to be with him. And it's not going to him saying, hey, so you did this and that and the other thing and that, and let's talk about that. No. To say, I died for you and you have faith in me, I trust, you know. Praises and honor and glory forever. That's what it is. It's a beautiful, comforting um, scripture passage again for us. that ties in with the rest. It's, I mean, it ties in, but it's not as explicitly, um, to, you know, the grace shown to the marginalized or widow. But here, this is God's grace, purely. Right? God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And so this, this epistle reading gets at what does that grace really, really look like? It's Christ offering himself once his blood shed for us so that we can be with him eternally. Any thoughts or questions as we draw here almost to a close? I have to get really good at being on time. Starting and ending here. I'm doing pretty good, I think. No questions? Well, I mean, you can tell me later. If I'm doing well or not. Uh, no questions, comments? Great. Let's have a word of prayer then, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time to study your word. Lord, in, in your word today, we hear just how wonderful your grace is. Quite frankly, a, a grace that we can't really understand, but we are ever so thankful that you show it to us each and every day. And especially that because of your grace, you sent your son for us, all of us so that we get to be with you eternally. Lord, we look forward to that day, but until that day, we pray that you would keep us strong in the faith and showing that love to others, so they may, they too, may have faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.